You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning, church family. Hope you guys are doing well. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is John Hall, and I am one of the elders here at Citizens Church. And it's so good to be here with you this morning, to get to be able to open up God's Word and be able to share a little bit with you. I hope everyone uh, enjoyed Thanksgiving. I hope you got to get together with uh, family and friends, and it was a good time. Uh, 2020 has been one of those years, uh, as we all know, and it probably made Thanksgiving a little more difficult uh, than it has been in years past, but nonetheless, I hope you guys enjoyed it. So in the blink of an eye, Thanksgiving's behind us. The Christmas season is before us, and with that season comes a lot of wonderful, sentimental, and maybe even hopeful expectations uh, that we have turned a corner, and we are about to leave 2020 behind. And maybe for many, this Christmas season will mean a whole host of different things. For some of it means the celebration of certain events, and for others it means grieving the loss of precious things in their lives. 2020 has brought with it the loss of so many things that we took for granted and maybe even expected and maybe even if we're honest, were things that our hearts felt entitled to have from the loss of jobs to the loss of certain normal activities and maybe even the loss of loved ones to COVID-19 itself or the complicated situations and circumstances that this pandemic has created for all of us. There's no doubt that 2020 has been an exceptionally difficult year, and maybe in the midst of all this, fear has fueled and sown the seeds of some false narratives in our lives. The fear from all of our loss has told us some lies about God and the power of the gospel, things that over the past year have potentially become the thing that we see as most true and how tragic that is, but praise be to God because of the appearing of Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross, loss and fear don't have the final say in anything. If you've been a part of the Village Church or Citizens Church now for any length of time, then our recognition and celebration of Advent is nothing new to you. In fact, this is the seventh year in which we have celebrated Advent here in Plano, and we do this for a very specific reason. We want you, Citizens Church, to orient your heart around the one true story, the gospel. And in the season and specifically a year when the possibility exists that your heart could be blinded to a number of false narratives, we want to push you to pursue the kings in the hopes that you will see King Jesus for who he really is, the way, the truth, and the life. The word advent is taken from Latin and it actually means an appearing and it refers to the appearances of Jesus Christ. One of those appearances was passed to us and we celebrate that advent in Christmas and because he came to save his people from their sins, but the other appearance is still future to us and there will be a day when he appears for a second time in which he will set everything straight and in which we will get to spend all of eternity with him and praise God for that day and we look forward to that and we Remind, we wait patiently for that day to come. So before I jump into this sermon, I want to make a few disclaimers about this sermon. Here is what this sermon is not. This sermon is not about dating. This sermon is not about marriage. This is not a sermon about sexual purity. This is not a sermon about having children out of wedlock. This is not a sermon about how crazy weddings can get. This is not a sermon about how you deal with in-laws. And this is not a sermon about divorce. 
Yet this sermon has some of all of those elements in it. And as we take a look at the first century realities around some of those things, the circumstances surrounding the birth of Christ, let's remember that this is a sermon about orienting our lives and our hearts around what is truth. In October of 1991, I was a junior at Hardin-Simmons University in Abilene, Texas, and I had met and I had my eye on this beautiful young lady named Laurie Bateman. And I finally got up the nerve to ask her out, and to my pleasant surprise, she said yes. And so on our first date, over dinner, as we were having pleasant conversation, she interjected this. She let me know very plainly that we would never, ever end up together. She had just come out of a relationship that did not go that well, and the last thing she wanted was another one. And so every woman in this room understands what she's saying. She was glad to be out on a date. She was having a good time, but this was not going to work out long term. But that's not what I heard, and it certainly wasn't what I understood. I took that to mean that she did not want a commitment, which was awesome for me. And so my parents divorced when I was 10 years old, and this caused me to question and doubt all things love. And my fear went something like this. How would I know? How would, you, how would you be with somebody? And how would you know, let's say you got married and 10 years down the road and you have a couple of kids and you just wake up one day and you just don't love your spouse anymore? How can you guarantee me that that won't happen? And what a catastrophic view of love and marriage. And yet, nonetheless, this fear had paralyzed me and caused me to run from relationships that were getting serious or had the potential of being even more serious. And so in a strange kind of way and in the sovereignty of God, her telling me that we would never, ever end up together was actually drawing my heart to her. And this was, this was a great thing for me. I was thinking, this is great. Finally, someone who doesn't want a commitment. So we could just go out, not get serious, have a great time. But over the course of the rest of that semester, we began to just hang out. And a lot of times as we were hanging out, she would remind me that this thing was not going to turn into anything serious or long-term. And as the semester ended, we had a talk. And in that talk, uh, we agreed that when we came back together from the Christmas break, we would still like to see each other. And she was going to go home to Brazil. And her parents were missionaries in Rio de Janeiro. I was going to go home to West Texas. Uh, one of those locations is a little more exotic than the other. I'll let you figure out which is which. But nonetheless, I went home. And on the first day that I was home, a girl came by the house that I had dated off and on again throughout high school. And she came to the house to ask me if I would like to go with her to Lubbock, Texas that night. My, th my first thought was, yes, I mean, that would be a lot of fun. But then there was something in my heart that was drawing me back to Laurie. And even though we had no real commitment at that time, I realized in that moment that I wanted one. I wanted things to work out with Laurie. So I turned this young lady down and I did not go to Lubbock with her that night. And I knew at that moment that I was in big, big, big trouble. And for the first time in my life, I was more afraid of a future without Laurie than I was with a future with her. And I was totally smitten with Laurie. And that's something that I have not gotten over to this day. And I knew at the same time that she had made it crystal clear that she did not want anything serious. So when we got back to school... I had to play it like nothing had changed. I had to play it cool. And so when she would say things like, well, you know, this is never going to work out, I would just go along with it. But over the course of that semester, she began to warm up to the idea of the two of us becoming a couple. And so at some point in that semester, we officially began dating. 
This was an exciting moment for me because the relationship was going in the direction I wanted it to go. And so the semester ended, summer came. Uh, she moved back to Richardson to live with her sister. I stayed in Abilene so that I, could st- so that I could work. We spent a lot of weekends that summer driving back and forth to see each other. So we were excited when the fall semester rolled around in late August. Got to be back together on a regular basis. And on a day in September, Laurie asked me if she could take me out. And I said, of course. And I had no idea where we were going or what we were going to do. I just knew that she was going to pick me up at a certain time. And so when I got into the car, I realized that she had packed lunch for us. And she drove outside of Abilene. We went to a state park and we had a picnic. And as we were enjoying lunch, she said, I have something that I would like to tell you. And so I got a little nervous because I had no idea what was coming. And Laurie told me that she didn't want to scare me. She didn't want to push me away, but she had been hoping and praying for some time that we would end up together for the rest of our lives and we would end up getting married. You could have knocked me over with a feather. This whole time I had been playing it cool, hoping that she would warm up to the idea of being my girl for the rest of our lives. And here was the girl that around a year earlier had told me that we would never ever end up together and now she was telling me that we, she wanted to end up together for the rest of our lives. My reaction was probably a little shocking to her. I was like, really? I was like, me too. And she's like, really? She's like, how long have you been thinking about this, praying about this? I was like, well, since December, a lot longer than you have. And so two weeks later after that picnic, we had reserved the building that we would end up getting married in the following summer. And even though we weren't officially engaged, we were moving forward. We're planning on spending the rest of our lives together. And then in December, as we were on Christmas break again, I had to make a phone call to Brazil to ask my future in-laws for their blessing on our marriage. This will be hard for some of you to understand, but there was a day and a time that cell phones did not exist. We had phones and they had a wire and that wire was connected to the wall and you didn't carry the phone around with you, you just stayed there. And we had what were called long distance plans. And so when you called within your region, that was free. But if you called outside of that region, that was considered long distance and it was expensive. And if you called another country, it was astronomical. You had to take out like a small loan. I mean, I'm just kidding, but it was a lot of money. And so at that particular time, to call Brazil was like $3 a minute. That was the rate. So just to put this in context, if we were to talk for 10 minutes, that would be a $30 call. And at that particular time in my college career, that was about $40 more than I had in my bank account. And so I had, when I called, I had to come to the point quickly. And so I dialed the number, the phone began to ring. I could hear my own heart pounding. And because they lived in Brazil, I had never met them face to face. In fact, I'd only spoken to them once on the phone. So this is like cold calling your in-laws to ask for their blessing uh, on a marriage. And so my, her dad answered the phone and I don't know why this surprised me, but he answered the phone in Portuguese. And so that threw me off. And so I, I waited for him to end his part in Portuguese and then I quickly introduced myself and just in case he had no idea who I was I threw him the bit about hey I'm, I'm dating your daughter Laurie and so I asked him if I could speak to he and his his wife at the same time and then there was this long pause nothing and right when I was about to say hello are, are, are you there he hollered out Margie get on the phone that boy that Laurie is dating wants to speak with us And so Laurie's mom came running the phone. She got on the phone. The first question she had was about Laurie's safety. Has she been in an accident? Is she okay? You know, is everything fine? And I'm like, look, Laurie's fine. I'm about to have a heart attack. We should worry about me, but Laurie is okay. And so I reassured her. And so I quickly came to the point. I explained to them that I love Laurie, 
that I wanted to marry her, that I would take good care of her for the rest of our lives, and I wanted their blessing on our marriage. They were more gracious and kind to me than I deserved, and they gave us their blessing. And so a few weeks later in January of 93, I asked my girl to marry me, and she said yes, and I'll be forever grateful for that. And then in July of that same year, Laura and I stood before our friends and our family, and we said, I do, and I'll be forever grateful for that. Now that little story is a brief account of how my wife and I met and ended up getting married. And regardless of what you think of that story, and some of you are thinking, well, that's five to 10 minutes of my life, I'll never get back. And others may have enjoyed it on some level, but regardless, everyone who has grown up in America understands that's how dating relationships work. Boy meets girl or vice versa. They date, they get engaged, they get married. We all get that. But that's not how it worked in first century Israel. They had a very different system for young men and young women to get married. And in our passage today, we're going to see how this went very sideways for Joseph and Mary. And this chaos that was brought into their lives was so that the king of kings could make his advent, his appearing in the midst of that same chaos with a couple of amazing promises. So let's jump in this morning, take a look at the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth and those two promises. So Luke 2 seems to be most people's go-to story for the birth of Jesus. Luke 2 contains details about the birth of Jesus that do not appear in Matthew 1. And so for this reason, a lot of people defer to Luke 2. While Matthew 1 is lacking in those same details surrounding Christ's birth, it definitely is not lacking in telling us about the circumstances surrounding his birth. And so the first verse out of our passage today, Matthew 1.18, it begins this way. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So when you throw those three last little words in there, in this way, you know something out of the ordinary is taking place. And so while most people today read through this passage with a cursory glance and believe it covers the routine overview of Jesus' birth, this is not the way a person from first century Israel would have seen this. A person from that time hearing about this account would react to shock and astonishment. And their reaction might go something like this. They'd be like, no way. Tell me that didn't happen. That happened here. Where did that take place? And it would just be astonishment and shock at the way this went down. And yet the reality is the Bible tells us this is how the birth of Jesus occurred. It happened in this way. To help you understand what is happening, I will explain how a wedding occurred in Israel during this time. And then this will help you to grasp the difficulty of Joseph and Mary's situation. And so these are the elements of a wedding in the first century, okay? So it's a little different from the way we do it, so bear with me. So there are three main parts to this. One of those parts is the betrothment. The second part is there are events that happen on the day of the wedding, and then there's the ceremony itself, which is a little different from our ceremony. So we'll take these one at a time. The betrothment. So a betrothment is basically this. It's the legal agreement between two families whose children were arranged to be married to each other. In other words, the couples did not date. The wedding was arranged by the parents with the kids' input in this. So the closest thing we have to the betrothment is an engagement, and yet they are very different. In the betrothment, it is considered a small step below being wed. The couple would be referred to as husband and wife under this legal agreement. To end the betrothment would require a formal legal divorce, which the Matthew 1 text tells us that Joseph considered. And so typically the betrothment would last about a year with a young woman living with her parents while all the while while two families prepared for a wedding ceremony. 
And so when the big day came at the end of the betrothment, on the day of the wedding, this is kind of a cool part. I, I kind of get uh, crazy about this, but the groom, he would get decked out in his wedding attire and he would walk over to his bride's house and he would pick up his bride, her family and her bridal party. In fact, in Matthew 25, the first 13 verses, Jesus tells a parable about this very event. And in the parable, it's about being prepared for the second coming of Christ. And in that parable, he uses the analogy of the bridal party waiting on the arrival of the groom. And half the wedding party was prepared for the groom's unusual arrival at night, while the other half didn't have any oil for their lamps. But as the wedding party would make its way to the groom's house, there would be singing, there would be clapping, there would be dancing by the bridal party, and people who were attending the ceremony from the village, they would fall in, and it would be something like a parade on the way over to the groom's house where the ceremony would take place. And so once they made it to the groom's house, there would be a formal wedding ceremony. It would be similar to a wedding ceremony that we would see today. There would be the exchange of lifelong vows would happen, and they would formally become husband and wife. Now, this is where things get a little strange and possibly a little awkward for us. But the couple would immediately consummate the marriage after the ceremony. Let me explain why. A man's credibility in Israelite society was tied to the purity of his genealogy. And thus the reason that Jesus' genealogy appears in Matthew 1 right prior to the text that we're using today. And so because a man's dealings in Israelite society was dependent on his credibility and his ability to point to his lineage, sexual purity was paramount in the society. For a couple to present themselves as virgins at the time of their wedding was a linchpin of the Israelite way of life. So at the wedding ceremony, there would be a tent that would be set up to the side. And while everyone else would make their way to the reception, the bride and the groom would enter the tent and they would consummate the marriage. And so important was this aspect of the wedding that the groom was required to take a white cloth into the tent with him. And the cloth would serve as proof the couple had, if you will, sealed the deal. And so after consummating the marriage, they would join the others for the reception and there would be a formal part of the, of the reception where the groom would present the white cloth to his father-in-law. Awkward, okay? It's a pretty wild kind of a thing. But the reason for that is that the father-in-law would keep that cloth. And if there was ever a question about the sexual purity of his daughter, he would produce that cloth as proof that that was a baseless claim. And after that, the party would ensue. Wine was served and the guests would drink to their fill. And so eventually the party would die down and people would return home, but the newly married couple would sit at the groom's residence and they would receive guests all week long. And the expectation was that if you came to visit the newly married couple, that wine would be served. And so in the Israelite mind, the wedding was a week long event. It was a seven day thing. So now that we understand a little about the weddings during this time in Israel, let's take a look at the text and see what this means for Joseph and Mary. So the Bible tells us that Mary is found to be pregnant during her betrothment to Joseph. So she's still living with her family and she and Joseph have had no opportunity to be together. So what this means is it's crystal clear and it's obvious that the baby does not belong to Joseph. 
And so we know from scripture that this is part of God's plan and that Jesus was miraculously conceived from the Holy Spirit and that God is in control of this entire thing. But thanks to Luke 1, we also know that during the first three months of Mary's pregnancy, she visited her relative Elizabeth, who was also pregnant at this time, and Elizabeth was carrying John the Baptist. And it's probably during this three-month interval that Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25, takes place. And so chapter 1 of Matthew 1 is told from the perspective of Joseph. And Joseph, at this point, he has no idea any of this is from God. All he knows is that his wife-to-be is pregnant and the baby is not his. And so since they are betrothed, he has several options available to him. Option number one is this. According to the Mosaic law, he could have her dragged to the edge of town and stone her to death. Option number two, he could publicly divorce her and publicly bring shame on her. And option number three, instead of the public divorce, he could do so privately, he could do so quietly and allow her to go away without the public spectacle. And after thinking on this for a while, this is the option that Joseph has resolved to go with. And he goes with this option because the Bible tells us that he is a just man and he was unwilling to put her to shame. And so this is Joseph's dilemma. This is where Joseph finds himself in the midst of this mess. But as Joseph ponders his options, an angel appears to him in a dream one night and says this, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Now I want to stop right here for just a minute. Anytime the Bible says, do not fear, it's saying that because there's really good reasons to be afraid. There's really good reasons to fear. And Joseph has a lot of reasons to be afraid. And so Joseph is being asked, if you will, the Lord to commit social suicide. His credibility and standing in Israelite society is going to be destroyed. It's going to be demolished if he takes Mary as his wife. And here's why. The Bible tells us that he was just and unwilling to shame Mary. What I'm about to tell you, I'm going to make very crystal clear, is speculation. Because the Bible does not directly address this. But I would imagine that that implies that he was getting advice to do the exact opposite. There were those who were probably advising him to shame Mary, to publicly call her out as a whore, and to make an example of her so that this would never happen again. So when he goes to take Mary as his wife, he is marrying someone that is viewed as less than a woman, and he will be seen as a spineless man in their society who didn't even have the courage to do the bare minimum of divorcing her quietly. And in this, he will lose any standing that he has in that society. This child, which is obviously not his, will be seen as illegitimate. And so when Isaiah describes Jesus as a suffering servant, he was suffering from the day of his birth, from day one. And what the Lord is asking Joseph to do by taking Mary as his wife is to willingly step into something like the year 2020 for the rest of his life. So why would God ask Joseph to step into this chaos? There are two reasons that are given to Joseph in Scripture. One is, God lets him in on the secret. He says, basically, that which is conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. In other words, what he's telling him is that God is telling Joseph that this is my doing. This is part of a bigger plan that you don't fully understand. I need you to trust that I have this situation. And I need you to trust that in having this situation, I also have you and I have Mary and I have your best intention at heart. And the other side of this is your son 
will save his people from their sins. And for Joseph, that was all he needed to hear. Now in this moment, God is reminding us that it is far better to walk into the storm, to weather the chaos of our lives, if we end up with God in the end of it. If we get God at the end of it, it is a beautiful and a great thing. The real tragedy is not living through a pandemic and all the mess that comes with that. The real tragedy is idolizing our pain and believing that the chaos that comes with it is what is the most real in our lives when Jesus offers something that is so much better. The Bible tells us that when Joseph woke from his sleep, meaning immediately, meaning that he did not hesitate to step into the suffering that God required of him, meaning that he took on the brunt of everything this would mean, he did exactly as God commanded him. And God had commanded him to do three things. One of those was to take Mary as his wife. The second was to keep her a virgin until after Jesus was born. And the third was when Jesus is born to name him Jesus. Joseph is probably 15 to 16 years old at this particular time. Mary is probably 13 to 14 years old. I like to imagine what the scene was like the day that he walked over to Mary's house to announce his intention to marry her. I would imagine that her father met him. I would imagine that he asked Joseph's intentions. I would imagine that he begged Joseph not to drag his daughter to the edge of town and have her stoned to death. I would imagine that he would beg Joseph not to publicly shame her, that if he was going to do something, please put her away quietly and do this. And Joseph looked him in the eye and said, I don't intend to do any of those things. I intend to marry her. And while that's a 15 to 16 year old boy, in that moment, he was a man. And I'm going to say something here. Here's a sermon within a sermon. If you are a single woman with the hopes that one day you will be married, I would say this, you marry a man and you're thinking, duh, what else would I marry? But I don't think I've been clear. And here's what I mean. Our society has produced a lot of boys who refuse to grow up and become men. And that's tragic. But if you marry a boy thinking that you can change him into a man, listen to me, sister, you're a fool. What you do is you find you someone who is already a man, and better yet, you find you a man who loves Jesus, and better yet, you find you a man who loves Jesus more than he loves you, and when you find that guy, you marry him. Now I'll get off that soapbox and I'll get back to Advent. So Joseph not only married Mary, but he also kept her a virgin until after she had given birth to Jesus. And so the virgin birth of Jesus is about showing that this is a God thing and not even the possibility that he came from mankind in any way. And this was God executing a plan that he had from before the foundation of the world to save mankind from their own destructive sin and to initiate his kingdom coming into the world. And what a beautiful thing for us. But this would have had huge, huge huge implications for their wedding. We have no idea because the Bible doesn't tell us whether Joseph walked over to her house and publicly walked her back to his house for the ceremony, but we do know this. They had no consummation tent. And to not have a consummation tent at your wedding in that society in that day and age was a glaring admission that Mary was a woman with no scruples and Joseph was a man without a spine. And this one element would have been unheard of and unprecedented in their society. And yet Joseph and Mary were faithful to do what God had called them to do. 
And when the son was born to them in Bethlehem, they named the boy Jesus, just as they were commanded. And Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Yeshua, or our English word Joshua, and the word means Yahweh saves. And so that Jesus will save his people from their sins is promise number one. And so Jesus saves his people in a couple of ways. Jesus saves us from our sins, plural, meaning that he, whatever we have done, are doing, or will do, Jesus has already paid the price for that on the cross. And that's why the gospel is called good news. In a year like 2020, where so many of us have been so isolated, it can be overwhelming to be alone and in that isolation to have the accuser remind us of every wrong we have done and everything that is currently wrong with us. And in that moment, it becomes easy to believe the false narrative that somehow we have sinned ourselves outside of God's grace and have shamed ourselves beyond the reach of God's love. And I beg of you to hear me today, that simply is not true. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation and you cannot out the grace of God. Praise God for that. And Jesus still saves. But Jesus not only saves us from our sins, plural, he also saves us from our sin, singular. And so because of the effects of Adam's sins, we have something fundamentally wrong with us. The struggle of every person walking the face of the earth is that we have a worship problem. We want to make much of the creation, namely ourselves, and while relegating God, the creator, to a place of insignificance. And we wouldn't state it that way, but we certainly live that way. And in dying on the cross, Jesus not only saved us from our sins, everything we've done wrong, but he also saved us from sin's dominion or rule over us. And here's the good news of the gospel, that you have not out the grace of God and you have no longer have to live as a slave to those things that alienate you from God. And here's the lie that you're currently living under that sin promises you life and flourishing, but in reality, all it can provide you is death. Now listen to me, I want you to understand this. It's not that sin could provide you with life and flourishing and just simply chooses not to do it. It cannot do those things. So when sin promises you something good and when sin promises you something beautiful, it's lying to you. It cannot provide those things. Sin simply wants to chain you to something that would enslave you to be a constant source of death in your life. And Jesus' stated purpose in his first advent, his first appearing is to save you from those things. And I cannot imagine a better way to end 2020 than for someone to be saved from the sins in their life and to be saved from the effects of that sin over their lives. And that's promise number one. Promise number two is this. They shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew chapter 1 verse 22 states that all this took place to fulfill a God-inspired prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. And that prophecy says this, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So I have a hard time imagining that in Isaiah's day or even centuries later that anyone read Isaiah 7:14 and thought that God would miraculously cause a young girl to conceive a child. They probably thought the Messiah would be a political or military leader, and that would be born naturally to a girl who was initially a virgin. And they certainly never imagined that God himself would become flesh to dwell amongst us, to know our pain, to know our struggle, and yet to do all of this without sin. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16 say this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, with confidence, with the greatest of confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Emmanuel, the God who is with us, the God who is not distant or far, but rather the God who walks with me, the God who shows up, the God who appears when things are at their best and the God who appears when things are at their worst. And even when my world is crashing in around me and even when I'm at my worst, still God draws near to me. And in a year where everything in our world has gone so sideways, in a year where so many people's lives have been turned upside down, the promise that may be most comforting to know is that God's desire is to be with us, to not withhold his presence from us, but rather to show up and to show up when things are falling apart. You see, to be with someone you care about has its own special rewards and blessings. But to know that someone wants to be with you as well is possibly even sweeter. And we serve a God who's openly confessing that he is not only loves us, cares about us, wants to save us from what is most destructive to us, but also wants to be a constant presence in our lives. God desires this, not because he has to do this, but simply because he wants to do this. My Hope Church family is that you find encouragement and strength in knowing that we serve a God who shows up, who makes an appearing in our lives, and this is the story of Advent. That God has shown us his grace rather than his wrath, his presence rather than his absence, his nearness rather than his distance. And we serve a God who is near and who is rich in mercy, and this is the true narrative of the gospel. This is the true story of the Advent. And as we celebrate Advent over the course of the next month, let us press into what is true about God. Let us pursue him and rest in his grace, in his mercy, in his presence. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the beauty of what your word teaches. I thank you that even in the midst of chaos in life, you've shown us time and again in scripture that you're there. You walk every step of the way with us. And that's a beautiful promise. And I thank you that you're a God who not only shows up, but you showed up to save us. And not just to save us from anything, but you saved us from our sins. And you initiated your kingdom. And you did incredible things, things we could never do for ourselves. And you gifted to us your righteousness in that moment. What a, what a beautiful, beautiful thing. I, I praise you and I thank you for all of that. And I pray that if there are those in our church family that have struggled with isolation, loneliness, that have been put through the ringer in 2020, that have struggled in numerous ways, maybe ways that we can't even mention in this place, I, I pray that you would, you would comfort them and be with them. And I, feel, I pray that they would feel your presence and know that you are walking with them even in this moment. And Lord, if there are those who need to be saved, I pray that you would save them in this season. Oh God, you're great. We praise you for that. We thank you for that being so awesome to us. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen.